Welcome to episode 167 of the Sentientism podcast, a podcast about what's real and who matters. The Sentientism worldview answers those two deep questions by committing to using evidence and reason and having compassion for all sentient beings. In this episode, I speak with Jared Moore. Jared is a lecturer at the University of Washington School of Computer Science. He recently created a class on the philosophy of AI and created and teaches an ethics course, as well as teaching technical artificial intelligence courses. His satirical novel, The Strength of the Illusion, is published today. Uh, so go and check it out. Previous sentientism guest Mark Solms called it extraordinary. I'd love to know what you think of this episode and the 166 others in our treasure trove of a back catalogue. Why not let me know via a review or rating? We've had a few really lovely reviews lately. Um, they're much appreciated. Give me a warm glow and help spread the word and help many more people find our podcast in their feeds and in their searches. So thank you. You can find out more about sentientism at our website, sentientism.info. You can sign up there for email updates or just search for the word sentientism, that's sentient with ism on the end, on your favorite social media platform. We're pretty much anywhere. And you'll be made welcome in all of our global online communities. They're open to anyone interested in these sorts of ideas and their implications, not just people who agree with sentientism. Thanks for listening. Could we not explain consciousness, morality? I think that we can eventually explain those things through rigorous science. At the age of five, I decided that I should be vegetarian uh, because I thought it was mean to kill animals. Jainism has this uh, very strict uh, set of eating. You can't even pour hot water down the drain at risk of killing microorganisms. Maybe they could accuse vegans of being inconsistent. My better future probably starts with myself. I endeavor to be consistent, to examine my own actions, to do more good, how to understand the difference between right and wrong, real and illusory, what is the right thing to do. Good morning, Jared. How are you? Hey, Jamie. Uh, I'm well. Thanks for having me on today. Yeah, well, it's a pleasure. Thanks for making the time. We're from the somewhat sunny Seattle morning before the heat kicks into a slightly drab London afternoon. So it's great to span the globe. And thanks for making the time. I would take a London afternoon right now. Yeah. Yes, it's like it's pretty brutal out at the moment. Well, it's brilliant to get the chance to talk to you. It's a series, I guess, of uh, conversations about what I think of as the two deepest philosophical questions, the questions of epistemology, what's real and how should we go about believing things about reality. Um, and equally as important, the question of what matters and who matters, the questions of ethics. And I have an obvious bias because I'm trying to popularize and develop this really simple pluralistic worldview I'm calling sentientism, which in a sentence is evidence, reason, and compassion for all sentient beings. So it suggests that when we're thinking about how to believe, we should use evidence and reason in a sort of humble, naturalistic approach. And when we're thinking about our ethical scope, the clue is in the name that at least every sentient being, any being that has the capacity to have experiences to suffer, to flourish. Um, should matter in our ethical considerations. But I have the pleasure of talking in these conversations to a wide variety of people, whether they agree with that worldview or not. So it'll be interesting to understand your own journey and your story and your philosophical story as we go through that. Um, but before we get on to those big questions, uh, how would you best introduce yourself and your work? Um, yeah, thank you. Um, I'm excited for the conversation as well. Um, right now, I'm working at the Allen Institute for Artificial Intelligence uh, here in Seattle as a researcher. I just finished being a lecturer at the University of Washington where I've taught classes on 
artificial intelligence, like the math of it. I taught a class on the philosophy of AI, which is a lot of fun, a class that I made. Uh, and I've taught for a number of years classes on computer ethics or AI ethics, uh, depending, trying to think about. My initial motivation when I was going to school, I was trained as a computer scientist, was to think about the implications of the tools software engineers make. But much more broadly, I have been interested in thinking about, similar to you, like what are the right things to do and, and how do we bring those, those sorts of things about? What's interesting to me about artificial intelligence is that it's such a, it's a sandbox in a way uh, to test out a lot of these ideas, you for, to formalize them mathematically oftentimes. Um, and so that's a lot of what my, my main work is. But I also have a book coming out uh, in two weeks from the time that we're talking about this conversation, uh, the 1st of September, called The Strength of the Illusion, which is, it's a novel, actually, a, a philosophical novel that explores a lot of these, these kinds of ideas that I just described. I'm, I'm supposed to describe it as a timely meditation on what happens when artificial intelligence clashes with human stupidity. Yeah, that's what the publishers have told you to say. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm not as good with taglines. Yeah, yeah. Oh, no, that sounds fascinating. Thank you. And I and I agree as well. I think um, many of the people I sort of talk to and work with in some of the fields of activism find the artificial intelligence space, um, you know, maybe a bit of an intellectual or a philosophical distraction. But I think it's fascinating, both in its own right as a field, but also because, as you said, it can be a real sort of creative sandbox, a place to explore um, some of these sort of deep assumptions and concepts that we might use in, in everyday life and in, you know, intrahuman and inter sentient ethics too. Yeah. So. Yeah, absolutely. Of course, there are all the issues that then arise with artificial intelligence as it's practiced is that, you know, the discipline, the people, the AI companies, et cetera. But I guess I was speaking more about the academic uh, parts there. And then of course, as to your questions about sentientism, there are a lot of, it raises a lot of interesting concerns in cognitive science uh, and uh, philosophy of mind about what does it mean to think, to learn, etc., which I'm sure we'll get into. Yeah, sounds good. Thank you. Well, let's start with the first of those crazily broad philosophical questions, that sort of what's real question. Um, and for many of my guests, that starts out as a conversation about whether they grew up originally in quite a, maybe a scientific and naturalistically minded household and society, or one that was maybe a bit more supernatural or religious or spiritual in some sense, and how that side of their thinking has changed over time about you know either a supernatural view of the world, a naturalistic view of the world, or something else. Um, and, th and that question of you know religious, not religious, is only one of many topics where we could choose to apply epistemology, but that's often where people start. But feel free to answer that question however you like. Um, I appreciate it. I think it makes sense to understand where people are coming from. I grew up uh, with a father who derided religion. Um, so it was very much a... Uh, I, very atheistic uh, upbringing, which in some parts I regret as an adult for I have many people who grew up in more religious, community-centered kinds of upbringings. And while I still agree with the epistemological tenets of atheism, um, it's I am less the kind of cultural or uh, experiential uh, parts, uh, less so. So I, in terms of thinking about what's real, I have little reason to, I, I'm not convinced about the 
kind of existence of uh, God or something like that, nor really with spirituality. But that's not to say that I want to discount the feelings of religious experience or spirituality. We can go back and read William James and on the varieties of religious experience to uh, think about how fascinating the phenomenon of these experiences uh, are. So I would say that's a, that's a bit of a beginning, but I'm happy to dive into more. Uh, yeah, thank you. And, and, and your father's sort of derision, where did that come from? Was that a reaction against his own upbringing, or you know, so what was he what was he pushing against? Because that's quite a that's quite a, a that's quite a classic, you know, starter tag. And I probably went through that phase myself as a sort of slightly angry, rebellious teenager. But what do you think was driving his? Or maybe he still does drive. It's a really good point. Um, his parents weren't religious, so it's hard for me to think that it was a reaction against that. But I think that they had my grandmother is Irish and she hates the Catholic church with a um, passion. And so he probably carried over a little bit of that. And I think he's a medical doctor as well. And so I think in working as a primary care and family medicine doctor, there was a lot of anti-science feelings popularly. So I would imagine that this caused a bit of, you know, developing a thick skin or a kind of hardening to some of those topics, which, because I haven't had those experiences, I can be much more loose about them. And, you know, in university, I went, I joined a gospel choir, which is, I'm not religious, but it's a really fun and um, enlivening uh, way to approach life. Yeah, yeah, thank you. And it was interesting, you mentioned that, I think you'd hinted at a couple of aspects there um, about the the, the meaningfulness of a religious experience, whatever that might be, but also the sense that maybe you missed out a little bit on the community aspect of it that can be like a rich part of a uh, you know, religious community upbringing as well. And, but it is a difficult dynamic because some of the challenges of a religious or a supernaturalistic worldview, I think, can be deeply brutal and deserve to be challenged and attacked and resisted. And that might be driving some form of exclusionary ethics. You know, we look most commonly at things like homophobia and sexism and out-group out bigotry that can come from a religious worldview, um, or even some of the things that are built into it. You know, I would argue that telling young children they're going to burn in hell for eternity if they don't follow the rules is, is somewhat unethical, right? So th there are some things where, you know, I think there should be a robust and strong pushback, and maybe some of the stuff your dad might have experienced in the medical world, right? If there are people refusing valid medical treatments for supernatural reasons or turning to supernatural solutions when they really need actual medicine or alternative medicines when they really need actual medicine. So I can understand those challenges, but it is difficult because that can lead to a sort of angry atheist sort of rejection of the entire enterprise. But there are still there are still things of value in those fields that Yeah. Uh it's not been my life to combat religion as I would see the, the four horsemen, you know, uh, Dan and Sam Harris and, uh, and folks uh, as doing. I, in my personal experience, I think there's just value in being kind to each other. When you talk about this, it's not always the time to <laughs> get all uh, embattled about our, our positions and uh, go off on a screed about 
how, how something is wrong. And few few people are willing to actually debate the the tenets of their beliefs. I think this is probably why you have the uh, intro you do to scientism about uh, it being you know founded in reason or something along these lines, open to uh, critique, scientific in a sense. Um, and that's of course the tension between science and religion, uh, and that kind of unwillingness by design uh, to uh, accept alternative hypotheses and test their views is what perpetuates religion. Um, and that's also why there's such a clash. And I think that's the core of it to me. It's, it's that having enough doubt and humility to be ready to change your mind, having enough doubt and humility to be willing to test your own beliefs and credences against reality to see if they actually tie up and having the bravery to change your mind if the evidence is different. I think that is the essence of it. And of course, there are many people with a naturalistic and a scientific worldview who fail by those standards too, right? Because, you know, having a... Oh, well, we all fail by those standards. Yeah, we all do. But <laughs> I think the question is whether whether we and in the institutions then recognize that failure and correct it or whether you just sort of double down on the failure. But... Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, yeah, I do agree. And so it sounds like you that you probably have that broadly naturalistic start. You've, you remain atheistic with an appreciation for some of the value that can play through a religious context. But you mentioned you weren't drawn to sort of spirituality or, or other aspects of the sort of supernatural or transcendent either. And that's quite an interesting dynamic because some of my guests have moved away from a formal institutionalized religion because of ethical issues or because of dogmatic issues, but they've still wanted to retain some sense of the transcendent or the beyond or the supernatural. So they end up almost in a sort of spiritual but not religious sense. But it sounds like you've not been drawn to those things either? I haven't been drawn to them. I guess part of it to me seems, I don't want to step on anyone's toes here, but it, it seems a bit like Mysterianism, uh, which is sometimes a term used in philosophy to describe an appeal to mystery uh, before the facts are out, more or less. Why assume that something... Is your explanation indeed the most parsimonious or uh, kind of likely one? Could we not explain consciousness, morality, name whatever other held close to chest abstraction that people uh, like and appeal to spirituality, et cetera, to justify? I think that we can eventually explain those things through rigorous science. And that leads some to rejects the the claims you can't explain the you know what it is like to be me you can look at the history of the debates about consciousness Searle's Chinese room Thomas Nagel's what is it like to be a bat and these appeals are are in a sense spiritual they're appealing to some kind of mystery that allows for um, the way that people are and I just think that it's the world of what evolves and there was a selection processes in a variety of senses we can come to an explanation but that explanation doesn't need to be how shall i say uh a letdown you know just because we explain the illusion does not mean that the illusion doesn't exist yeah that makes sense to me and i think there's a couple at least a couple of different responses to a mystery one which i like is that's fascinating let's find out more and acknowledge we might we might not ever get the answer but let's keep trying and and there's 
as much wonder and fascination in that process as there is in the answer. And the other approach is when you experience something that is a mystery is to accept the mystery as the answer and stop looking. And that yeah. I find deeply frustrating and, and irritating. You know, I think sometimes <laughs> people with a scientific worldview can be criticized for being sort of too cut and dried and almost denying the possibility of mystery or wonder. Um, and I think that's a fair criticism because even a lot of what science has found out so far is deeply weird, right? Deeply, deeply weird, right? So we should be open to weird ideas, but let's not posit an answer until we've actually got evidence to back it up, right? You can be open-minded about crazy stuff, but don't jump to a belief until there's some real, something to back up the credences. And I think it makes, there is a degree of bad blood, perhaps, uh, where scientists will only admit the few things uh, in the experimentally verified uh, results that, that they uh, have at the moment. And so are, you know, you can think of the behaviorists in the mid uh, 20th century holding things very tight to chest, not able to explain mental phenomena, and therefore uh, saying that discussion of consciousness or other kinds of internal states, emotions are not scientific or not worth talking about simply because they just didn't have the adequate methods to study those things and so there's of course there's this tension where scientists are imperfect and can be uh, mean <laughs> yeah that makes sense thank you and this is a slightly weird tangent but as we wrap up this sort of question about what's real in epistemology and in nearly every one of my conversations we're talking about humans right and how humans come to believe things and on what basis from your academic work but also from your i guess your fiction writing with a new book how have you come to think about whether artificial intelligences do they have epistemology you know are, in what sense are they learning can they know things uh yeah um it's a really good question uh, there's the way that has been put recently in a subfield of AI is about understanding in particular. There are large language models like ChatGPT understand language. This is epistemological in nature. Do they understand? Do they know language? That's one thing. And then another could be: Do they actually understand the the reference implied? The the things that our words refer to. Do they? Can they truly? Mm, understand shape and, and color and all of these things that are that seem to be beyond language itself. This has been a, a big debate in AI the past couple of years that I imagine you and many of your listeners have at least heard about because these tools are so popular. The intuitive response is, well, when using these tools, GPT-4, OpenAI's most recent large model, or Claude, Anthropics, or a variety of others seem to be able to use language okay. You, you, know, you probably have played around with these tools. Some of your listeners might have. They make errors. But humans make errors, too. Oh, yeah. And so it's hard to say. I mean, it seems like they know some things. It might be that they have a different set of things that they know than what humans know. Uh, and so you would say that there's not a kind of parallelism with the ontology. Perhaps they only know a kind of uh, word-like things, these models, um, as opposed to 
something more robust uh, as human organisms experience. But I find it hard to truly say that they don't understand when they can use language in such a with, with such apparent ease. There are a lot more particularities in terms of what we mean by by these things. And I don't need to go down that academic rabbit hole. But yeah, I think that, that there's obviously something there. And yeah. exactly what is still being debated. And I think it's one of those interesting areas where digging into that can help us understand and elucidate what we mean by these concepts in the first place. Because I think quite often there is this default stance that, you know, understanding is something that humans do and only humans do and we don't need to interrogate it beyond that so as soon as you start to say well could an artificial intelligence or even could a non-human animal know something there's an instinctive response which is no they couldn't because they're not human and that's not a particularly deep way of thinking about what <laughs> knowledge means and i think partly again in a naturalistic context when i come back to my thinking about how we as humans as human animals evolved over time. And my view is that, you know, basically I'm a sort of physical evolved being, right? That that can give me some sort of parallel into thinking about, you know, there isn't some mystical sense in which humans know and understand. You know, ultimately, I think it's patterns of information processing in some god awful messy wet sense in my head, right? But yeah, there's that's one of those areas where I think thinking open-mindedly about these concepts in an artificial intelligence context can help us re-examine what it might really mean for even for us but absolutely and i think that that's a lot of the value um in as i said previously thinking about ai as a sandbox in a way you can control all of the parameters you can twiddle the knobs more or less and then see what improves performance on some tasks and what doesn't um, in a way that we can't with uh, organisms. And so that's um, quite fascinating. Now, of course, I think that some more boosters of AI get into trouble by over-endorsing the kind of knowledge in uh, systems or imagining that it will be better than it is in an unrealistic time frame. Of course, we run into that as well. Um, but yeah, some, somewhere in the middle, I think is uh, quite appropriate. Yeah, thank you. So let's move on to the, the second of these big questions, this question of what matters and, I guess, ethics. and But also as part of that, who matters and who should we care about, who should get compassion, who should get moral consideration in our ethical systems? And for people like you and me with a broadly naturalistic way of thinking, it's quite an interesting question to address because we're not given a package of you know religious worldviews with rules and guidance and a God to obey, right? We have to find some other basis for our ethics um so again you, i'm interested in even from the your earliest days of when you first started to think about good and bad and right and wrong how did how did how did those things come into view for you and how have you come to think about them now what are they even, what do they even mean as a child you mean or just yeah yeah again i guess in the context of you know growing up in a with a non-religious family right there were messages there, no doubt, about good and bad and right and wrong. And, you know, on what on what basis were those put forward to you? Or did they yeah, just absorb? Interesting. Unfortunately, I, I think more easily of examples where I believed to have figured out what was right and wrong, independent necessarily of what I was told. 
Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, it was a bit iconoclastic or uh, difficult, in other words. Um, so, for instance, at the age of five, I decided that I should be vegetarian uh, because oh, wow. I was, I thought it was mean to kill animals. Um, at five, yeah. Yeah, five, quite a precocious age. Um, and, and, that, and that was because it was mean to it seems, kill animals. Yeah, so I, that mean, I use that language because that's what I would have thought when I was five. But yeah. Yes, I, could have, I would have a different description now um, that it's animals and other organisms are deserving of moral patience, of our moral attention. They have some weight. Yeah. What exact weight is unclear? It's a bit of a tangent, but I think your thinking as a five-year-old was more advanced philosophically than the average adult human. So that's pretty <laughs> impressive. But but what what reaction did you get from parents and those around you when you sort of made that declaration at five? It's hard to remember exactly the kind of reaction, but I was I stuck to my guns, and so uh, I think they eventually uh, let me do what I want. And I then convinced both of my siblings, actually, also to become vegetarian. Oh, wow. And were they, were they older? <laughs> or? Yeah, there was one older and one younger. Yeah. Uh, so I, I convinced many were the majority at that point. Uh, and so they thought they had to make dinner for us. That's pretty impressive. Pretty impressive. And how about when, how about when you were at school and sort of friends and wider society did that? I, I revisited a lot of these discussions uh, with myself and with others. You know, I think that even growing up in a naturalistic kind of worldview, there are cultural senses of what is right and what is wrong. I grew up jaywalking, for example. But if I'd grown up in uh, Germany, where my step-grandmother is from, I would have probably not grown up jaywalking, which <laughs> is quite unacceptable to jaywalk. This is a very, like, this doesn't seem like it carries the same kind of moral weight as uh, animal welfare, perhaps. But it's an interesting exercise in thinking about how the culture you're in determines uh, this sorts of landscape of what is right and wrong, which is vaguely how I think about uh, ethics and how ethics emerges also uh, over cultural evolutionary time. There's many, uh, the, these discussions could get into very political, become very political in nature. Who is deserving of attention as a person in that kind of democracy becomes a question of distribution and welfare and such, and then these lead into uh, probably discussions that we don't want to be having right now. But those are, I, I was very occupied by a lot of those thoughts through my um, school days, being involved in debate and the groups that think about these kinds of things uh, very often, thinking that I needed to, in, in some kind of sense, do the most good. Uh, uh, for other people. It's been in my university years um, that I have tried to really drill down and think what that means and why one way as opposed to another. Like what, what is the right objective more generally? And why do I think uh, the things that I do are right or wrong? As you mentioned, I teach ethics classes. So I really have to uh, be able to think about some of these things. Yeah. I'm, I'm... It sounds like you um, you started off at five years old thinking about not being mean, if you like, and and kindness, and sort of without getting too formal about it, it's a sort of a virtue based thing of just you know how should I act in the world. Um, it sounds like there's also an appreciation there for you know 
cultural context and how that shapes things, which people can think of in a descriptive way. You know, this is just the reality of how people's ethics get shaped. But other people can also take that in a more normative sense where they start to say, well, maybe morality and ethics is more relativistic and it's more something in the context of a group rather than something we can look at objectively. But you've also got this strong theme of actually taking that to a, a really strong stance of thinking about, you know, trying to do the most good and some ideas about sort of almost a maximizing ethos. So where where do you get on, where, where, how would you summarize that stuff now? Do you have a sort of pluralistic view that uses bits of those? Are you more dedicated to a particular ethical sort of philosophy and school of thought? Or? I, I really appreciate this. You're, you're, you're more or less poking holes and naming different parts of my life as adhering to different branches of uh, normative ethics, which actually have a textbook of sitting at my uh, desk. At the moment. Uh, and I think that's quite right. I, it's the the youth uh, sample life's pleasures uh, before they then, you know, exploit uh, and continue uh, down a certain path. As I, it stands now, um, you're asking, you know, are you a utilitarian? Are you a Kantian or, or something along those lines? Do you like following rules? Do you like multiplying and adding? Um, I would say that I have kind of hesitations about all branches of uh, normative ethics, but I am, I would, I would probably take a bit from each and a sort of pluralistic uh, approach, as you said. Although if I really had to say, uh, I would describe my position as being uh, a naturalistic sort of ethics. I like Patricia Churchland's work. I don't actually agree with her positions necessarily, like the normative positions that she takes, um, but I, she attempts to ground out ethics and morality in evolution. She studies prairie voles and montane voles and looks at the degree of pair bonding as explained by the number of oxytocin receptors in the montane voles brain and things like this. Uh, very reductive that make most people quite unhappy about ethics. Ethical thinking emerged over human evolutionary time. Uh, uh, other species are not able to discuss the appropriate uh, means of action, but we are. And what leads us, the, the question is, what leads us to do this uh, in the evolutionary time scale? One argument goes that it is a way of, uh, ethics emerges as a way of stabilizing social groups in a kind of tribal society. Doing the right thing uh, might be like the jaywalking example earlier, the kind of dress that you do, how you kill and prepare a sort of animal. It might seem ritualistic, but those rituals might have acquired, might be uh, approximating a degree of cleaning, for example, and therefore be adaptive and continue to spread. Uh, these are cultural adaptations, kind of cultural adaptations that lead to the emergence of language itself. So I see no firm boundary between the things that, you know, not killing and such, the, what seem like very clear moral cases, and jaywalking, which seem more like inconsequential kinds of cases. Uh, of course, this makes it difficult to say 
you, you then would accuse me of relativism, of saying that, oh, it doesn't really matter one way or another. That's what people often take relativism to mean. But I don't think that's the case necessarily. It, it's as if we are navigating a kind of landscape. It's a very messy landscape. But just as the like wings are an efficient means of navigating the air and have been found by evolution in bats and birds by different kinds of routes, you could imagine the landscape, the fitness landscape uh, of social relations and ethics as having fixed points or obvious solutions, like wings in the case of birds and bats. And maybe those obvious solutions are things like fairness and equality and different kinds of abstractions as we think about them amongst uh, people. So that's very vaguely how I think about it. Interesting. Thank you. And it's, um, I guess that idea of there being a sort of messy landscape that different ethical systems are trying to navigate makes sense to me, again, at least descriptively. But there's there's one sense in which that landscape is determined by a sort of classic evolutionary fitness landscape, where the fitness is not about being morally good. The fitness is about the ability for the individual or maybe even the group to stay alive and replicate, right? Which could actually involve some really nasty ethics. So, so there's one sense in which that landscape is somewhat amoral, right? Because it's just about conti us continuing to exist as patterns. And that, I think, would lead you to a more relativistic stance where you, you say, well, there's no objective morality at all. It's just what helps us continue to survive, even if that's brutally awful to some other groups. But there's a different perspective, which I'm, I'm not sure which you were laying out, which I quite like, which is to say, look, yeah, there's a messy landscape. There's lots of unknowns. Different ethical systems are approaching this in different ways. But as you said, there are some fixed elements to any of our morality, or there should be in my mind. And to my mind, that fixed element is the perspective of others and valuing the perspective of others. And obviously, in my context, I'm thinking all sentient beings are an other because by definition, they can value their own existence and their own experiences. And so to my mind, the fixed thing about this landscape of working out morality in some sense has to value others in some way, shape or form. And that might lead you to saying, well, intrinsically, therefore, suffering is bad. Intrinsically, therefore, being killed when you don't want to die is a bad thing. These sort of, are there some things we can appeal to almost regardless of the ethical system, such that we could find an ethical system that seems to have reached some sort of fitness peak on the landscape because that group is very successful. But we can say you're causing egregious, brutal suffering. Therefore, you might have a successful moral system, but it is actually immoral or amoral. <laughs> I Yeah, I, I, I hear this. I, it, it's difficult for me because... To me, coming up with a all of the right things to do, more or less, the fixed uh, solutions of fixed uh, points, seems to me like uh, a rule-based uh, ethics, which in the jargon is deontology. Um, it's it's so unlikely uh, for there to be one set of rules uh, just on the probability of it, and all of you can read normative philosophy and all of is it this rule or is it this rule? And well, they 
actually you could interpret this rule slightly differently. And there all there's all this messiness uh, when we have to actually come and, and ground out uh, those theories. So I'm, I'm quite hesitant uh, about uh, deontological ethics for this reason. And to be clear, I'd I would I would agree that I think the idea that those rules or those solutions might be fixed, you know, good luck with that, right? I think what what's fixed is just the frame of reference for how we assess good and bad. And in that sense, personally, I'm quite comfortable linking the good and bad of experience to the good and the bad of ethics. Um, I think that's so, fair. But, but that could still leave you in a position where you've got really no idea you know, exactly what the solutions are or what the rules are or the best approach or whether you should take a care ethic or a different approach. Or you could still be just as confused, but at least you do have that frame of reference that would, for example, say, you know, intrinsically suffering is a negative thing almost by definition. So can, could we agree with that at least? I think, I mean, I, I would like to say so. My my intuition is yes, basically. Um, and, but I think that I would probably argue for it on the grounds of consistency uh, rather than on the grounds of it being necessarily right. For, to me, in a sense, I'm arguing for a relativistic position, but now that what it, the position is relative to is the evolutionary history of, of humans, which on the grounds in on the grand universal scheme of things is changing it could have been different but for us it is how it is and it will not change now the, the question that you raised is could there be an adaptive fitness uh maximizing uh ethical policy which is nonetheless bad <laughs> basically <laughs> where we seem to be doing things and then it's not what we uh uh, later realizes is correct. And I think that's obviously the case. Um, you know, we can look at human history, think about slavery, think about women's rights, uh, a variety of things. Today, think about animal rights uh, and find these kinds of things. But I would say that this is, to me, what makes them apparent is the appeal to consistency because we recognize that, oh, we, we treat each other as deserving of moral attention. I te treat treat your neighbor like uh, you would yourself uh, or uh, a family member. Now, well, why not somebody else? Uh, why not somebody on the other side of the world, for example? Why not, uh, why do you treat your dog differently than you do the factory farmed animals that you're eating, uh, for example? And so I think I actually think that consistency can get us uh, a lot of the way there because you can peel apart these sorts of uh, issues. That makes sense, yeah. And I and I like that. In, in a way, when you have these sorts of conversations, there's always going to be the question, yes, but why should I care, right? <laughs> and, and, and one of the responses is, well, don't you at least want to be consistent? And I think that's a good appeal, right? That's a, that's a difficult one to someone for someone to say, no, I really don't care about being consistent. I mean, they could, and some do. They could, no, they absolutely yeah. can. And I, I unfortunately just don't know if there's a way um, of arguing them out of that. It's a, it's a, no, I agree. It's biting the bullet, but it's a strong biting the bullet. Yeah, it is. And I, and I think even if, uh, I, Again, I'm a, very much amateur in this space, right? But obviously, one of the big fiery debates in moral philosophy is about anti-realism, moral anti-realism, and moral realism. But, but I think it's obviously true that even if some brilliant philosopher 
with a moral realist stance suddenly discovered the underlying incontrovertible moral truths and said, look, I've written the paper, everyone agrees, that's the answer. People would still say, yes, but why should I care, right? It, it, doesn't, it doesn't fix anything for you, right? And, and ultimately, the only response to that person, I think, is, well, hopefully the rest of us are going to constrain you. <laughs> because, I mean, there's, you know, ultimately, there is no magical, brilliant, final, compelling moral argument, you know, whatever your stance. So. But, but you see, you've now, you've gone back and appealed to the social group as the uh, way of grounding out this kind of uh, position. Yeah. yeah, exactly. It's tough, isn't it? But I, I, but I, I liked your sort of hint at liking a pluralistic approach, because I think I, I, I share that to a degree as well. That's shifted personally over time. But that's partly why with this sentientism idea, I've explicitly kept it uh, pluralistic as to the ethical stance. So it's really clear about the ethical scope of moral patience. It says any sentient being, at least any sentient being, warrants serious moral consideration. But once you've agreed that, you could apply a feminist care ethic or a deontological ethic or a virtue ethic or a utilitarian ethic or some other form of con consequentialist ethic. And I think, you know, it, there's still so much to fight about there. But each of those, <laughs> plenty, right? But each of those ethical systems, as long as you grant at least a baseline level of moral consideration to all sentient beings, I think that avoids the most serious risk, which is to me that of moral exclusion. Because once you're excluded as a moral patient, anything goes, right? You can be harmed, tortured, killed with complete impunity for trivial reasons without even a moment's thought. So in a way, that's my my primary ethical objective with the sentientism idea is saying at least let's include all of the sentient beings. I agree. I think it's a reasonable position to make. And there are, uh, there are plenty of arguments left. For example, one is, do you give all sentient beings equal moral weight? And that's a very difficult question to resolve. It is, yeah. I agree. And, and again, that's one of the another irritating things about sentientism is it's neutral on that too. Right? So it literally is just evidence, reason, and compassion for all sentient beings. But that question about whether you try and take a more egalitarian stance or whether you do recognize there might be, even if you're egalitarian in terms of like interests, you can still recognize that different sentient beings have radically different interests and needs. And if we grant, even if we grant rights to all sentient beings, the rights that are relevant to each of them could be very different. Um, or if you recognize there might be different degrees in a multi-dimensional sense, different degrees of sentience that could warrant different moral weightings, right? Those are, you know, open and difficult and often violently debated questions. But but I think that, again, I'm sort of taking the easy way out by backing away from those and saying, look, let's at least make sure all the sentient beings are included. Um, and the there's a risk there, I think, because... By backing away and sort of setting that boundary, there's a danger that boundary then gets eroded. And I think you can see that in the popular discourse where people will say, well, I, I do care about non-human animals, but I can still find a way for trivial reasons to needlessly harming and exploiting them. So the, I guess the, the other thing I'm trying to do is to hold on to a, a clear and robust, at least minimal definition of what compassion and moral consideration and moral status should actually mean. And I guess my suggested baseline there is, I guess in technical terms, a sort of non-maleficence, which is saying at least you wouldn't needlessly harm or kill or exploit, right? And that's a pretty minimal baseline, right? I mean, hopefully you and I, if I said I cared about you, you'd want me to actually actively help you. But I'm saying, look, the absolute minimum you should expect from me is that I wouldn't needlessly, without a strong justification, 
harm or kill you. As a um, sort of somebody who teaches ethics, this is your naming of a position just causes me to want to go in for the kill, more or less, to <laughs> try to break it. Um, I'm also an engineer, so you know I'd like to try to break things. Uh, but I I do agree with the intuition. I I think it makes a lot of sense. The questions of what is a need? Is, is eating a need? Is uh, what are your needs for vanity needs? How do you divide, you know, for wearing fur, for example? Um, how do we uh, justify this? I'm sure somebody could contrive an argument for some of these things. Is it a convincing argument? Uh, does it get great adoption? Yeah, and those are tough, right? And and I think, again, maybe it would echo our earlier conversation because someone could come up with a story where they say, look, Jamie, I'm completely on board. You know, I'm with sentientism. I grant moral consideration to all sentient beings. But because of the way I've calculated, you know, the utility of my own pleasure experience, I think it's still absolutely fine for me to order steak, right? And And I think where we'd end up, is probably an echo of the conversation you were talking about before, where you'd have to appeal to consistency. You'd have to talk about, well, you wouldn't treat me in that way, you know, but at least I think you've got some sort of starting agreement for uh, who gets included. You can then discuss a definition of what minimal moral inclusion means. And, you know, it doesn't mean everyone's going to come to the same conclusions about what's right and wrong, but at least you've agreed a sort of baseline that hopefully gives you a chance for a constructive conversation. But who knows? Who yeah, knows? I, no, I, I, I agree. I'm, uh, that's why I think it's so fascinating. So on the second part of this question, which we've somewhat covered already, which is this question of, okay, well, who matters? And it sounds like you're on board, at least with a sort of sentient-centric approach that any being that can experience things, that could experience suffering and flourishing, balanced experience warrants moral consideration you started putting that into practice yourself when you were five by you know going vegetarian has that thinking shifted or formalized since because i followed a similar path but way later than you because i was obviously just much more viciously trapped by social norms and i didn't have that boldness <laughs> at five years old to follow my boldness, convictions the boldness caused issues in other ways yeah. i'm sure it did i'm sure it did <laughs> Uh, but so I so I went uh, I was vegetarian in my early twenties, and then it was probably another twenty years after that where, in a way, I finally allowed myself to learn about the reality of you know dairy and egg production and leather production and so on and those other things yeah, and, and, go, and go vegan five or six years ago. But the calibration for me is a bit weird because it wasn't a philosophical choice and it wasn't a discussion about justification or need or ethics. The reason, I guess, why I stopped to vegetarianism for so long was really a social awkwardness calibration. It was, you know, at that time, vegetarianism was weird. Veganism seemed really weird. So that's as far as I'll go. And then what I, what I, once I decided that position, I would, just like most humans do, right, I'd use the full suite of cognitive dissonance and, uh, you know, social norm compliance and just avoidance and, you know, to to allow myself to not have to engage in the topic, frankly. Um, and in the end, in a moment of weakness, you know, those things wobbled a bit and I had to carry it through. Um, but I'm interested in, because that, that, that topic about the food space is so resonant with sort of cultural weight and social norms and this sense that, you know, maybe in, some, in a way we do need to consume non-human animals. Is, is that, how has that shifted since you were five? I, I think I would just I would describe myself as going through a similar process as you. It I never I, I wasn't aware when I was I had very 
cartoon version of the world. You know, you killed animals to eat their meat, but that the eggs, eggs and dairy, etc., weren't the issue. It was when I was in my early twenties that I went vegan, more or less, and that's kind of shifted ahead based on impossibility of actually being vegan at times when you're traveling, etc. Uh, but yeah, you and why was I not uh, vegan earlier? For there's really no difference. Like the, the reasons that people become vegetarian for animal suffering are by the sake of consistency shouldn't lead them to be vegan. And what leads them not to be vegan is that it's a real pain. Uh, and uh, it continues to be a real pain. It's less so a real pain in the, over the past five or so years because of everyone that's concerned about climate change. And so, yeah, uh, it's getting easier, isn't it? I mean, practically and socially, but still. <laughs> but uh, it's, you know, we want to be able to say that you should stand on your values and in the face of significant opposition, nonetheless, do the right thing. So perhaps go vegan in, in, in a sense in this uh, discussion. Or maybe it would be be an abolitionist uh, a couple of a hundred years ago. Or perhaps uh, there are, I'm, I'm sure we can think of other uh, kinds of issues uh, today as it concerns poverty, perhaps. And it's tough. Do we judge our, our previous selves for this? Uh, do you, should we feel guilty about it? Uh, retrospectively, uh, were we necessarily wrong then? It, in the way that I think about the landscape of social relations um, with regard to ethics, I feel as if there's, you, you have to place some, some weight in the people you're interacting with. It just is harder to, to do the right thing in that uh, kind of setting. It might be more virtuous to have uh, gone all that much farther to be Jane, for example, a very Jainism that has this uh, very strict uh, set of eating. You can't even pour hot water down the drain at risk of killing microorganisms, uh, which is at least consistent. Maybe they could accuse vegans of being inconsistent uh, with regard to how they would treat uh, sentient person, which is it gets back to our previous conversation. Exactly what do we mean by these terms? So we can always open them up to interpretation. Your question was about uh, how have I continued to investigate the question of who matters over my life since early childhood? Uh, this is all to say I'm very troubled by my own uh, actions. I would like to be consistent. I know it's an impossible vision. And I also think that it's a good practice. Uh, the kind of person that I would like to be, I won't get there entirely. And it doesn't just pertain to eating. Um, it also pertains to the carbon that I contribute to the world, uh, for example. One can constrict themselves, though, in all of these considerations, uh, become so, there are these effective altruists in the AI community who you might have run into, uh, who are utilitarians by another name, which is to say they want to maximize the greatest good. And exactly what that means, it's not clear. And that at the moment often has to do with 
reducing existential risk from artificial intelligence, but they're not strictly related to that. Oftentimes, they also might abide by Peter Singer's views, trying to contribute all their wealth. Is the is the right thing to do to give all of your wealth away? If you could spend a hundred dollars to save someone's life in uh, a poverty-stricken country by, you know, for bug nets or vaccines or something. Wouldn't that hundred dollars be better spent? Aren't you therefore, uh, you know, you're valuing the takeout dinner that you spent uh, that money on the whatever frivolous thing that I'm sure that we could come up with. They're real considerations. I don't agree with them in terms of how they define the good as utility maximizing, but I do appreciate the appeal to consistency in this sense consistency over other people uh, along the lines of what you're saying. Staying attuned to that uh, in whatever way we can, I think is important. Yeah, thank you. Um, and, and as we're thinking about the, and I, I agree, these are some of the toughest conversations, right? This idea of, you know, we, we have this sense when we want to be ethical people that there's some sort of perfection we could attain, which clearly is deluded, right? <laughs> Such a thing is not possible. So how do we cope with that psychologically? What's the right level of demandingness that we can just continue to exist? And, and the, these are deep and tough questions. And maybe that's another area where, you know, I've sort of selfishly copped out of those by using this sort of non-maleficence baseline to say, look, we can, it, demandingness is a really difficult thing. How much should we do to help? But at least we should try not to needlessly harm but even that is not simple right because ev every life causes some harm that you could say is needless so these are not these are not easy easy things but i think i, I like the way you put that up because it almost continuing to wrestle with that and challenge yourself and to at least aspire to be more consistent to be better is you know part of a healthy life as long as we can do that psychologically and uh... yeah i can't remember if it was aristotle who, oh, it was Socrates, um, who said that the unexamined life is not worth living. Yeah. And I I think that's still true. Yeah, it's not a bad guy, does it really? Yeah. No. So um, to round out this sort of who matters question, um, I think we're quite clear on this, at least, you know, sentience is a relevant qualifier in that context. Um, and again, given your work in the AI field in academia and maybe in your novel too, how do you think about moral consideration of artificial intelligences? Do you th think they could actually be sentient? Do you think that matters? How does your sort of philosophy of mind about consciousness and sentience and their nature play into that? Sorry, that's five questions in one go, but what... If we if we think about right, we think about non-human sentient animals, and we're thinking about humans. Fine, they're in. How do you think about artificial entities in moral I think terms? It's a, it's a very good question. I would say that I, I still care about sentience, as per my previous um, question. So to me, it becomes a question of whether AI systems are sentient. Now, because there's a different approach as well. There's an approach to say, well, they're not sentient, but here are these other reasons why I might still include them, you know, which might be relational or agency or some other basis or dignity. Or, but but yours is the question is still, are they sentient or not? That's still this essential question. Well, I guess it, it seems more interesting. Um, I don't think that the other questions aren't um, relevant. I think a, a good analog would be 
is a human language worth moral attention intrinsically or instrumentally? Say that there's a language that's going extinct because it's a dialect, for example, uh, Gaelic. Uh, and is it a moral wrong to let the language die absent the feeling, like not, not including the feelings that people have about the language dying? just about the language itself time. So the, the feelings people have would be an instrumental, the language itself would be an, an intrinsic uh, reason. This would be similar to how we would think about it. It's an interesting question. I mean, I think that we could debate that, but that's probably focused on, on AI right now. So the, the, that question in, in AI might be, well, maybe we should treat AI systems as well because it would be bad to us to have treated them poorly. If we're toxic to AI systems, we're spreading toxicity and maybe more, more, more likely to be toxic to each other, for example. I think that's a reasonable argument. But I, the question that I have is more along the lines of sentience, as you uh, describe it. Of course, people, sentience is, uh, some people use the term consciousness, some people use the term sentience. Sentience is more of a catch-all uh, that uh, skirts some uh, philosophical history with consciousness. <laughs> and so it's oftentimes more palatable. So it makes sense that you're using it uh, for your movement. But it's hard to uh, peel back the distinction between the two of them. Some might say that consciousness is the uh, kind of an ongoing descriptive narrative. It is the ability to uh, use language to describe one's experience or to uh, self-reflect in a certain way. If you define consciousness so narrowly, only humans can have it because no other species can truly use language. There's a degree of communication, but not the same kind of language. But also if you define consciousness so narrowly and you say that's all that is required for consciousness, then you would have to very quickly admit modern AI systems for they seem to use language. Or now we could respond and say, well, language, no, that's not what language is. Language isn't the words, language is the uses that we put the words to. It is the reasons for which we pull these kind of linguistic levers. The fact that I have these needs in the world and that therefore I am using language as a means to acquire it. This kind of view of language would be harder to give to AI systems, but I think eventually we would have to give it to AI systems in that kind of, uh, ways that they're going. Now, I am, that's in the philosophy of mind, the one jargon term that might split this distinction is the term functionalism. Whether you're a functionalist is, uh, says that you think that all that certain mental phenomena are in particular consciousness uh, is a a function. So telling time is a function that both analog clocks and digital watches perform. So long as they tell you the time, even if they're made of very different parts, they tell they they do the same thing. And so you might say, well, consciousness is simply using language in this sort of way, like I just described. Well, if, even if you have very different parts, you've you've checked the box, you've fulfilled the function appropriately. And this makes sense to a lot of computer scientists and the people who work on AI because, well, we write progr programs and uh, this uh, is, is very clear to us. But there are other views on uh, what 
consciousness is that are not strictly functionalist in nature. You had Mark Solms on your podcast uh, previously. Uh, I think of Neil Seth, Carl Friston. There are Terry Deacon. Dan Dennett actually hasn't come down strictly one way or another. He's more functionalist. Um, these are just all big name philosophers who have talked about these sorts of things, which is why I'm mentioning them. I will just say it's hard to say. I I have spent a long time trying to think about exactly what we mean by these different terms, such as I have been describing for the past two minutes or so. Um, I There's a significant debate as to how we ground out sentience or consciousness. I have my own pet theories as to which are most reasonable in this space. I'm not opposed to ascribing consciousness or sentience to AI systems. I don't think it's impossible. Um, I just have a lot of questions left. Uh, and of course, somebody might respond, well, geez, if there's some possibility that you will admit of AI systems being uh, conscious, does this not demand that we, uh, because of the significance of the wrong, for example, treating AI systems poorly, that we change our actions or change how we interact with these systems. There are a lot of available positions here. I'm, I'm uh, interested in them all. Yeah, makes sense. Thank you. So you're conceptually open to the idea that an artificial entity could be sentient, could be conscious. But yeah, like you say, I think it's entirely appropriate to have radical uncertainty about what the right answer is. And it's, a, and it's an interesting dynamic as well, because for biological entities like us and non-human animals, I find the evolutionary story very compelling. So when I interviewed Mark Solms, who I know is one of the reviewers of your forthcoming book, when I interviewed him back on episode 112, um, that was the story he was laying out, really. And I've also spoken to Dr. Walter Veit, um and, and others who've sort of shared this view, which is that um, in simple terms, sentience, this ability to ultimately feel are things going well or badly for me in the moment emerged quite early in the development of animals when the decision environment got to a certain level of complexity that it was useful to be able to weigh up different factors to decide whether to go towards the good and away from the bad and something like that was the sort of adaptive story that generated you know ultimately what you and I are doing now as we talk on talk on Zoom um, with quite a few years in between. So so that evolutionary story helps and that explanation helps lead me into you know my own personal philosophy of mind, which is somewhat functionalist, which is that I think that ultimately consciousness and sentience are just a class of evolved information processing that you and I happen to be doing. And it just so happens that it feels like this and there's no mystery to that. Whereas other people have this feeling that the feeling of consciousness must be somehow distinct from the function and that leads them to very different philosophies of mind. In a way that takes me down quite a sort of functionalist, materialist philosophy of mind route because I see that evolutionary story and I can see how that's played out. But we don't have that evolutionary story when we're thinking about artificial entities because they didn't evolve in the same context. So while I have a sort of quite functionalist view that might say, well, 
artificial intelligences, I, I can conceptually imagine why they could run a similar class of information processing that would render them sentient or conscious. We don't have that sort of adaptive evolutionary story in the same way. So it said, my, my amateur sense is that one, we'd either have to explicitly design that in in some way, maybe by replicating the information processing of a biological sentient being. And people have done that with super simple worms, for example, where they've actually replicated the you know, the pattern of neural firing in an artificial environment, or that there would be some other form of evolutionary analogous process that might have led to them becoming sentient. And that could be through, you know, human reinforcement learning or some other sort of digital process as well. So, it's a, But it's an interesting mix because that evolutionary story leads me to quite a functionalist view, which leads me to be quite open about the possibility conceptually of AI, but still quite sceptical about how to date about whether today's AI, given they didn't have that evolutionary context, are likely to be conscious or sentient. But... Yeah, no, I think it's a very good thing to wrestle with. I like a couple of minutes ago, you mentioned a valenced experience, which I think uh, is uh, important in various theories of emotion. They, they focus on valence in their discussion with Mark as well uh, on that. Uh, you also mentioned having a materialist functionalist view, which are not necessarily synonymous. The materialist view, of course, is just that all things are material. There's a related position of physicalist admits energy as uh, a ontological property, but for the materialist is practically synonymous with physicalist. Um, of course, you could still be materialist and not functionalist uh, in uh, position. You could uh, uh, argue that there something about these substrate the system is required for the uh, properties of consciousness to emerge. So, and I think this is even, I, I, I would say that I'm agnostic to the functionalist position, or rather that I would question at what level the function applies. So is consciousness any degree of information processing? If you, is it, uh, do you need these, uh, lower level systems. So as it happens with organisms, we are sorts of Russian dolls, so to speak, of interlocking systems down to the lower lowest physical uh, levels. You know, we have all of, we are composed of cells, which are composed of molecules, et cetera, that work together in, in this sort of way to uh, produce us as we are. But you don't see this same kind of seamlessness so there is no, you, we can describe abstractions at which we can separate biological organisms, but they're not true separators. But we do have these, these kind of true separators uh, in digital systems. Everything gets grounded out in bits, uh, in ones or zeros on your computer. Uh, is, so when it comes to this example that I, I brought up at the beginning of our discussion, uh, where we were talking about the emergence of wings. Both bats and birds have wings. They have uh, found the, the function of flying, more or less. Now let's compare that to planes. Planes also have wings. They generate lift. Their wings are very different than the wings of bats and birds. Uh, but perhaps for the function of flying, all we care about is getting off the ground, more or less. But maybe what we care about, and this is an analogy to what I'm talking about between the interlocking layers, is propelling oneself. 
that you are furnishing your own energy, that you uh, are thermodynamically constrained, to describe it in a more complicated way. The bat and the bird are thermodynamically constrained. They furnish their own energy. The plane is not. Does that, does that, is one definition. So the function now uh, for flying is not just gets off the ground, but also, uh, you know, feeds itself or gets its own energy. Uh, is that is that the right level at which we should define the function? And so then you can then pull back and think about consciousness in humans uh, versus consciousness in other organisms versus consciousness in AI systems. What, what level do we define the function? What are the necessary uh, uh, properties? Mark seems to think that it's simply a degree of information processing that, as you said, uh, things get complex enough that organisms, but really systems, develop internal variables that track the distal state of the affairs of the worlds around them, and that these internal variables come to be the emotions and then are, are made more complicated by our linguistic handles, that by the language that we use, and then we have constructed emotions of all of the, the different kinds of things that we experience. And something similar, Sokos' argument, could happen in AI systems, because we can quite mathematically describe minimizing the free energy of uh, a system of trying to do the least, uh, spend the least effort, more or less. Um, but maybe we need to extend that definition of spending the least effort to also spending the least effort thermodynamically. This is just a third way of stating the exact same uh, thought experiment with the bird and the bat and the plane. Perhaps that function requires us to be physically realized, that is, to be more or less alive. Um, I'm, I don't know where to stand. My intuition, as I see consciousness in humans, and as I imagine it exists in animals and other organisms, is that, well, they have this kind of physical substrate. Why isn't it required for AI systems? Other people in AI say, why should it be required? So there's a bit of an impasse. Yeah, more research required, yeah. <laughs> I hope that I haven't gone too far on the dance in the air. No, I love it. Thank you. That's fascinating. Yeah. So we've we've we share a sort of broadly naturalistic way of understanding reality. I think we share this sort of sentient-centric moral scope, and we're both open-minded, if healthily skeptical about whether that could even go beyond biological entities too. So the final question is, uh, how do we make a better future? So um, again, it's crazily big, and you can. Tell me about sort of utopian visions or the role of creative writing and your novel in sort of influencing human social norms or the role of philosophy in your teaching of ethics and so on and how that, that plays in. But I guess writ large, we've now got this picture where, you know, there's about 8 billion humans and we have some horrific intra-human ethical challenges and practical challenges to fix. We have trillions of non-human farm sentient beings that we continue to exploit and harm and kill um, uh, every year. There are potentially quadrillions or maybe even quintillions or sextillions of wild non-human sentient beings free-ranging out there, some of whom no doubt have good lives and many of whom have terrible lives. And we might even be at the point of 
creating new classes of artificial entities that themselves could be moral patients and many people think could also have a radical impact for good or bad on all of the other biological sentient beings I've just listed, right? So we, we're, I mean, we're always at an interesting point in history, but we are, we are now. So in that context, how do you think about, um, you know, how can we make a better future? And um, if you do have a sort of big picture view of that. <laughs> this is a tough one for me. Um, yeah. I think being- It's a bit unfair, uh, really. Yeah, as uh, endeavoring for such consistency as I do, it's hard to look at the world and uh, uh, look at it positively, I guess. <laughs> um, but I would say my better future probably starts with myself. I, I, I endeavor to uh, be consistent, to examine my own actions, to do more good than ill more or less. So I talk about these things, right? I have uh, attempted in the academic way I know how to popularize uh, these discussions in, in the book that, I, that I've written that tries to explore many of these questions that we're raising and approach them from different angles and that are particular narrative. Um, I teach ethics, right? I teach uh, a class at, or I, I was teaching a class at the University of Washington. I do research on these areas. I I can continue to be involved in advocating for the positions that I think are reasonable, like politically. I give comment on AI and computer science related things and the Washington, I live in Washington state, I'm in Seattle, Washington. So I go to the, the state legislature and I've tried to advocate there. Um, I imagine continuing to do these things as I move throughout my, my career. but. That's just my personal approach. It's kind of how I uh, stay sane. <laughs> uh, how, how can I imagine a better uh, world more generally for all of the different uh, things that you name? I, I hope that we can do things about climate change. Uh, I hope that uh, the people who are worried about AI risk uh, end up being wrong. And, but I'm not willing to say that they are necessarily wrong. I just hope that they're wrong, that there's a difference. Um, I, I, I work on those, those kinds of things. Um, I think it's reasonable to expect more people to become aware of these issues as they're educated about them. I see that in my life talking about uh, ethics. I have difficulty broadening my vision much beyond that for it's become so uncertain as to be negligible uh, but i very much value the kinds of work that you do trying to popularize these ideas uh, more broadly i wouldn't say that i am necessarily not having a universal sense of ethics in general trying to maximize the good also absolves me of trying to fix the world more or less i spent a lot of my youth trying to fix the world I continue to understand that position, but it's too much burden for uh, any single person to bear. Oh yeah, no, I love that perspective because it's um it's grounded in your individuality, your own role, but it's re reflect you know it's respecting the influence you can have, right? whether it's formally through teaching or by setting a good example and just trying to be consistent and by advocating and and speaking out. Um, and I guess I would say I, I mean, think where, that... where else could we start from, right? <laughs> exactly, where else can we start from? But 
we all can start from there is the other half of it. And that's is, I, I think becoming aware of our agency, even if it's limited, is hugely impactful because we can recognize that we can play a role in the world, whether that's simply in talking about these issues with our loved ones or advocating for them in a local organization or employer or school, uh, what have you. Um, this is where the world changes. Yeah, I agree. And I think it can change, right? And I, and I, I, I do appreciate that sometimes there can be too much pressure and focus on the individual because we have you know different opportunities and different education and different resources and different privilege and some people are struggling to get by day to day right so that's entirely fair but i think you can flip too far the other way when you're talking about systemic and collective change right because if everyone sits at home waiting for systemic and collective change there is not going to be any systemic or collective change right i mean all of those systemic collective things ultimately are driven by speech and the acts and the decisions of of individuals and i think you know we, we could be realistic about our own impact right we're each of us is one amongst eight billion with varying levels of influence on a breathtakingly complex situation but we we can also have influence and that influences how change happens and, and whether that's sometimes the sentientism thing can seem a little bit naive because it's it's sort of saying well it's quite philosophically focused you know if, if all humans would just agree to use evidence and reason to ground their credences and everyone would recognize that every sentient being matters at least in some minimal sense that would basically solve all of the world's problems right so obviously obviously that's obviously that's naive although i sort of think it's true in a sense but but the core of the problem normally is not actually about the philosophy because many people already agree with those stances it's often about the human psychology and the social norms and the lack of political will and the social inertia that sort of gets in the way of us being more consistent and being more ethical and doing the right thing quite often the technical solutions and the win-wins are staring us in the face it's the it's the social norms and the politics and the human psychology that is for some reason just stopping us doing the right things so absolutely as you described in your own life and the what took you a while in order to be consistent yourself as uh, or at least a little less inconsistent yeah. a little less <laughs> yes 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 i don't mean it i'm not meaning yeah. to insult you by any means <laughs> i just we are all inconsistent yeah um, yeah exactly yeah i like that so I, I need to let you go. Before I do, is there anything else you'd like to add into the conversation? Or do you think, because I think we've answered, you know, what's real, what matters, who matters, and how to make a better future. That's pretty good. In, yeah, it's all done. In 18 minutes, I think we're there, right? My massive audience just needs to listen to us and go out and put it into practice. But is there anything else you'd like to add into it? And I also wondered if you wanted to lay out a little bit more about the premise of the, the book, just to give people a sort of teaser uh, as to what they might yeah, no, I'm, I appreciate that. Um, I, so I, as you have said, I did write a book about many of these things. It follows a, an AI researcher who makes a machine that can write. And as he, he joins this startup eager to bring on-demand literature to millions. And as this startup brings overbold claims, overpromises about the kinds of things that this machine can do in solving the world's problems, Ty, this this researcher, is having these discussions at home with the, his partner, an activist partner who's opposing the, the technology that he's making, um, trying to get him to see the reality of the world, uh, more or less. But as this AI researcher is making this 
this tool, this writing tool, uh, not unlike ChatGPT, perhaps. He's also spending more and more time caught between the company and, and his activist partner. And so he appeals to more conversations with the AI system itself. He's kind of losing himself in the, the, the machine of his own creation, somewhat Faustian uh, in nature. Suddenly when his partner uh, organizes a protest uh, against uh, big tech, uh, Ty is forced to you know, decide what he really values, figure out how to be consistent, perhaps uh, as we're describing it uh, in this conversation. So he's, the central tension of the book is trying to figure out how to understand the difference between right and wrong, real and illusory. What are the, which of the conversations are mat that matter? What is the right thing to do? So it's, it's very much a book that asks us, you know, what kind of relationships do we want with machines? Like what kind of relationships do we want with other people and with other organisms? There's also a, um, which I think you and your readers might like, or your listeners might like, uh, a parallel story of a developing bonobo uh, throughout the entire book uh, that ends up learning to use a, some degree of language um, that I think would be kind of interesting. So it's about it's a book about many of the things that we've discussed. You can find it on my website, which um, you can put in the description of the comments, but jaredmore.org is my website. And another way to also follow me. That's great. I'll include the link in the show notes, but it sounds a fascinating book. I'm looking forward to reading it. And by the time we publish this, it should be out and uh, on the bookshelves wherever people can pick it up. So, yeah. Well, thank you, Jamie. Sounds fascinating. Thank you. Well, very good luck with the launch. Um, it's been a real pleasure to understand your sort of philosophical journey and how you see the world now. And um, yeah, thank you for being a guest on the Sentientism podcast. It's been a real pleasure. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me on. Um, I will endeavor to less inconsistency. <laughs> likewise, likewise. Yeah, always working on it. All right. Thanks so much, Jared. Take care. Thanks for listening. You're helping to normalize rational, compassionate thinking. Don't forget to subscribe, leave us some stars or a review. You can visit sentientism.info to find out more and you'd be very welcome in any of our online community groups. The biggest is on Facebook. If you like what we're doing, why not tell your friends about us?